Ephesians chapter 3, if you would stand with me, find your place there, Ephesians chapter 3. This was a thought I began a few weeks ago, and kind of continuing into tonight, just another thought for us from Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll read the text here, review a few thoughts, and then we'll get into a verse in chapter 4 tonight. So, we'll begin our reading tonight in Ephesians 3, 14. The Bible says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And again, we have this picture of the Apostle Paul who would have been on his knees. And I think that is probably for the Apostle Paul both figurative and probably literal. Here he is. He loves these people. He says he gets down on his knees, which is a good posture for prayer when able to do so. It's not the exclusive or only posture for prayer, but boy, that just puts ourselves in a position of humility and dependence upon the Lord uh, in our minds and in our hearts as he bent his body for this, this, these people that he loved dearly. And this was his prayer, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Paul was so concerned about the internal strength and the growth of these people. And so he is praying that the inner man would grow and be stronger. And in other writings, he would say that the outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day. And, and that was his, his prayer here. And in this point, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And here's how you grow stronger, by being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And it is from that love that Christ has for us that we derive our significance in life. Significance doesn't come from the outside. It doesn't come from other people. We may look for external validation, but that's only temporary. And Validation comes from God. God loves you, and you're significant for that reason and that reason alone. And he says, you need to comprehend this. You need to know this love that Christ has for you. Now unto him, verse 20, that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask. And I love this. Or think. The thoughts that we can't even, that are beyond our comprehension. According to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Verse 1, this transition. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Now Paul has been giving us really good news. And now he's going to make the application of that good news. Beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And then this verse tonight. With all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another, in, and I want us to say that last word tonight because that's our emphasis tonight, the word what? Love. In love. Let's pray tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time that we could share tonight. Lord, what a great week we've had, a great start to this year. Lord, thank you for Sunday night. And Lord, we look forward to uh, the victory night next Wednesday. And then just the future that, that uh, for, for this church family. And Lord, I pray that we'd enter the year again this month that we just continue to start things right. And Lord, that we would have love for one another, that we would both receive and comprehend your love for us, and then be conduits of that love toward one another. So I pray that you'd help us with this thought. Help us to find uh, just practical application and help in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this evening. 
once more, and not to be too redundant here, but these thoughts build. The end of chapter 3, Paul is emphasizing the love that God has for you as an individual. And this can't be overstated, and it can't be meditated enough on. He, he is asking us to not just know this in our minds, but to comprehend it in our hearts that God loves us, that we're significant, that we're important to Him. There is life transforming power that already exists inside of you. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you need to understand that, you need to internalize it in order to understand your significance. And then in chapter 4, in verse 1, there is this challenge for us to be real and genuine Christians. You have been called by God. And he is saying this, if you've accepted that calling, God so loved the world, He gave His Son to die for the world. He's called all sinners to Him. He's paid the price for their sins. Not all will receive that call, but some will. And by God's grace tonight, I trust that you have, that you've accepted His, His call from the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus into your heart to save you from your sin. And once you do that, Paul says, if you've received that call, you can't earn that call. But he asks us to do this, walk worthy of the call. In other words, you're not going to do it perfectly, but to the best of your ability, understand God's love for you, His great sacrifice, and walk worthy of the call that He's placed on your life. Show gratitude. Show an understanding by living a worthy life that, 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 that God loves you and that He sent His Son to die for your sins. The truth is this tonight. You can't fake your way into a good Christian life. When it comes to the Lord, it's either real or it's not. You can fake it with me, you can fake it with each other, but you can't fake it with Jesus Christ and you can't fake it with your Heavenly Father. And Paul says, I'm getting on my knees before God for you because I want you to comprehend His love and I want you to walk worthy of His love and I want it to be real. I want you to understand your significance and I want you to be genuine and authentic in your Christian life. So if you will tonight, there is, there is this idea of, of, of one door or understanding in our life that we are significant because of God's love. There's this responsibility that we have to be authentic. And it's like these two double doors. And when opened, they lead us to this, self-giving love. And that's where he leads us to in verse 2. Here is this idea, you're significant, God loves you. Be authentic, walk worthy, and how do we do that? We do that through the idea of self-giving love. That's what these ideas lead us to. And so he says, in your life as a Christian, if you would walk worthy, if you would be real and genuine and understanding of this great love that you've been given, then with all lowliness, and the idea is, is being humble. Don't be stuck up. Don't be arrogant. Understand what you've been given and, 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 and with lowliness. And then he says with meekness. The idea there is controlling your passion. Intentionally choosing to have a kind spirit about you. Well, I don't feel kind. Well, choose to be. Well, I'm kind of mean by nature. Well, change your nature. Like God loves you. He, 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 he's, he has all the transformational power. You need to be a different person. And so with lowliness and with meekness, controlling who you are and your attitude, with, with long-suffering, putting up with other people even when they act poorly and not reacting poorly to them. In other words, the people around you aren't perfect and they never will be. 
And they're going to have moments of weakness and humanity. And maybe they aren't walking worthy. But one of the ways you walk worthy is your long-suffering with them. You're lowly, you're meek, you're long-suffering. And then this word, forbearing, holding each other up, encouraging, helping one another. And all of these things lead to this very last word in verse number two, in love. Love. Self-giving love. It's the ultimate good in life. It is what lifts us up outside of ourselves. Because we can become so self-focused and so selfish and think only of ourselves. And, and love all of a sudden challenges us to think outside of who we are. It helps us to rise above resentment and bitterness that creeps into our lives and it's real for all of us. It helps us to get over petty demands and the conflicts that are in every relationship and everywhere that we go. It helps us to be able to give with all, without always expecting in return. I don't always have to get. I am free in the love of Christ and because of His transforming power to be a person who can give and not expect in return and be happy about it and have a good attitude about that. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul would write these words about the idea of love. That love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. And then he would say this, it never fails. Like it doesn't stop. Like we're continually challenged to be people of love. This is the summum bonum, the supreme good of the Christian life. And it's not just the Bible that says this. Science continually states that the happiest and most satisfied people are those who are engaged in gratitude and self-giving love. Scientists have discovered that when you love, you literally engage in higher level brain functioning. I mean, they, 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 they put metrics to this. Neurochemical reactions are set off throughout the act of loving another person that literally shower your body with positive emotions. It's not like God said, I'm asking you to love other people and do something like this, and it's all negative. And you just have to give and receive nothing in return. No, when you love other people, your body is showered with positive emotions and neurochemical reactions inside of your brain that literally help you be a happier and more blessed person. So there was a man named Martin Seligman, and he was working out at the University of Pennsylvania. And he discovered this. And so this question came to his mind. Is happiness triggered just as readily as having fun as it is by an act of self-giving love? So if I give, give self-giving love, I'm going to be triggered with this happiness. But what if I just do something for fun? Like what if I just like to do like a roller coaster or something and I do that? So am I getting the same reaction here? So he, he, gave, he did this study and he gave his students an assignment and he asked them to engage in one pleasurable activity and one philanthropic activity and then to write about both. And this is what he writes. It turns out the pleasurable activity of hanging out with friends, watching a movie or eating a delicious dessert, catch this, paled in comparison with the effects of the loving action. Seligman states that when our philanthropic acts were spontaneous, the whole day went better. If you want a good day, don't start it with dessert. Start it with loving somebody. 
he goes on to say that self-giving love is not accompanied by a separable stream of positive emotion. Rather, it consists in total engagement and in the loss of self-consciousness. In other words, time stops when we lend a helping hand or when we nurture a hurting soul or when we offer a listening ear. All of a sudden, life gets better, time stops, we get engaged in that moment and our own bodies are, are flooded with this idea of happiness. We all love being loved. That is true for me. It is true for you, whether you admit it or not. You love to be loved. But according to this research, the only thing better than being loved is to be loving. Like it, 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 it's good for you and it's good for the recipient. And so God's given us this wonderful recipe for our own joy and for the joy of other people that we would be loving people. And he says, by the way, I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to lead the way. I'm going to show you. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to help you. But you need to understand and comprehend my love for you and let it flow through you. And when you fail to do that, you're cutting off the source of the love that he has for you. You also cut off the love that you're supposed to have for another person. See, there are false constructs we allow in our minds regarding love that we struggle to overcome. When we think of love, we think it means I have to make other people happy and myself miserable. And we think falsely about self-denial. I have to be lowly, meek, long-suffering, forbearing. That all sounds such a, like a terrible, terrible way to live my life. But it's not. We think, well, I have to give, and I have to give, and I just have to keep giving and giving and giving, and they just take, and they take, and they take, and I get nothing in return, but it's not true. Does love sometimes involve sacrifice? Well, sure. But sacrifice is not the goal here. That's not the point. Self-giving love is not always about doing without. Even if you sacrifice, and even if you go without, and even if you give and give and give, even that is not a metric of love. And Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I just give it all away. And though I give my body to be burned, I mean, I'm going to lay it out there, and I have not charity, he says this, it profiteth me nothing. It, it, sacrifice is not the point here. It's not about just giving and giving and giving. That's not the end goal here. Great love is found in great decisions. See, great love does not always demand great sacrifice. It'll certainly involve that at times, but it doesn't always demand that. What it does demand is that it make you make conscious and good decisions with the loving actions that you take in your life. It's the result of small decisions that you make every day. It's the result of those little interchanges with your spouse, not the big ones. It's the result of your interaction with your child. It's questions like this, do I hurry to my next appointment or do I check in with my coworker who seems to be hurting today? Do I put my phone down and play with my five-year-old or do I stick to my tasks to reduce my to-do list? Do I make the effort to warmly greet a visitor at church or do I make sure that I get the seat that I want this morning or, or tonight? How we answer 
small decisions determines ultimately how greatly we love. It's a myriad of big and small acts of kindness and compassion, generosity, concern, thoughtfulness in the moment, all of these things. That is ultimately what adds up to this idea of self-giving love. So how do we know if we're loving enough? How do we evaluate the love within our own hearts? Well, these were two questions that I found in my study that I found extremely helpful to me personally. And they go like this. What is the first thought that comes to your mind when you enter a room full of people? All right, is it number one, how am I doing? Or number two, how are they doing? I enter into church, how am I doing? Or I enter into church, how are they doing? It's a very different approach. And any social setting fundamentally elicits one of these responses. I enter my adult Bible class this Sunday morning, not at 9.30 because it starts at 9.30, but at 9.15. And I walk in. How am I doing? Or how are they doing? Go into the youth room or the bridge or junior church. Walk into work tomorrow morning or the classroom. How am I doing? How are they doing? You walk in the door to your family after a long day of work. How's my spouse doing? How am I doing? See, either you are concerned with yourself and with the impression that you make, or you are focused on the others present and what is taking place in that moment. And it is in that moment when you are making these small decisions where your love is truly shown. See, we want to, we want to make it about big sacrifice. And we want to make it about what we do for the big events. But how about this? What's your spirit? And what's your attitude like when you walk in the door? And how, how do you receive other people? And who are you thinking about? Understand this. When you look at the world and others through a filter of self-focus, it limits your understanding of other people. When you're just thinking about yourself and your day, and your problems, and your hurts, that is going to limit and blind you to what's taking place in that environment and what's important in that moment. Because now you aren't able to see their needs. And you miss opportunities that exist for your love to meet those needs. Here's an opportunity. Here's a small decision. Here's something you can do to help, to be a blessing, to, to really capture what matters in this life and in eternity. The self Focus limits you from seeing others. You don't see their desires. You don't see their motives. You don't see their emotions. You don't understand their day. And you don't see how their life is going. Because self-focus makes you think about yourself the entire time. And it makes you self-conscious. And you think to yourself, how am I being perceived? Why aren't they meeting my needs? Why aren't they doing this for me? And, and, and that is a natural tendency but it's not Christian transforming life-giving love to what Christ has called us to do and to be. See, self-consciously, self-consciousness ultimately makes us insecure people. We're not confident. We're not sure of ourselves. We're anxious 
about how we're perceived and our needs. And then it does this. It makes other people around us unsettled. And so we walk into the auditorium tonight and we're just focused on ourselves and how am I doing? And, 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 then, and then that creates this aura of tension around us because we're so focused on our needs and what we need. And we're blind and we can't see the needs that other people might have tonight and how we can meet them and how we're called by Christ to meet those needs. And, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. And it's a great reason why we gather together as a church family. And all of a sudden, this aura of tension creates insecurity in that relationship. And it makes those people feel insecure around you. See, loving people do something different. They do their best to walk into the room, the auditorium, the foyer, and ask this question. How are you doing? Not, not self-focused. Self-aware, that's a, different, that's a totally different conversation. Self, self-focus is different from that. It's this, I'm others aware. I, I, I'm in tune to what's going on in the world around me. I'm in tune to this moment and I'm observing. They listen, they pay attention. They listen to words being spoken and more than that, they pay attention to the nonverbals, the tone, the facial expression, the eye contact. They're sensitive to signals. Researchers believe that 90% of communication is nonverbal, what we aren't saying. In other words, I'm talking a lot right now with my voice, but a lot of what I'm saying is be communicated by what, how I'm, my facial expressions and, and yours back to me. They're sensitive to these signals and love dictates this, that we clue in to what people are communicating and to what they need. And this is where this idea that Paul would write about here, lowliness, that's what we need from one another. Meekness. That's what I need from you. I, 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 don't, I don't need you to be out of control. I need you in control. It's what I need from you. Um, long-suffering. It's what you need from me. Th- these are the things that Paul is writing about. And he says, I want you to do all of these things in love, forbearing one another, lifting each other up, and doing it in love. And that's where these things come into play. The people who ask this question, how am I doing? They are looking for external validation, but external validation is a means and an end to itself. They are looking for affirmation and they only feel good about themselves if someone else affirms them. In other words, I come in and I'm self-focused and all I can think about is myself and I need you to come to me and ask me how my day was. And I need you to tell me that I look good tonight and you're glad to see me. And then I feel good about myself because you've affirmed my presence and you've affirmed that I'm here and you've given me positive support. And now I feel good. But minus that, I'm going to sit in the auditorium and I'm going to think to myself, no one here cares about me. And no one in this church is loving. And I need to go find another place or maybe just not go back to church because no one's investing in me. And I'm going to tell you, that's self-focused thinking. And when you get to that place, you're blind to the world around you. You miss real needs. And now you're not seeing the hurting hearts that you can help meet. This is our responsibility. If you are a child of God, 
if you accepted his love, then Paul would say this tonight. I get on my knees and I beg that you would be transformed in your inner man so that you wouldn't be so self-focused. You would grow stronger through the Christ love that dwells within inside of you. That you would begin to walk into other places and say, how are you doing? How can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I help you? Not seeking external approval because we already have that from our Heavenly Father. Worth is never determined by external validation. It's determined by the love of God. People matter. And we act like no one likes us. And that I don't matter. And because I act insecure, it makes other people insecure. And I raise the tension around me. But loving people think and they act different. They're in tune to other people, not for their own validation, but as a means to more effectively relate. In other words, it goes like this. I've embraced God's love, and therefore, I have a responsibility to walk worthy of the love invested in me and to invest that love into those that God leads into my life. I free myself to both embrace love and then to give love as well. So what are the biggest barriers to me loving? What are the barriers we face at being social? Hey, look, Eastland Baptist Church is a pretty social church. But if Jerry Palmer weren't here, how social would we be, right? This is not Jerry Palmer's responsibility only. We're all called to be social, to interact, and to love one another. But at differing levels, levels we all struggle with this. Some people are social butterflies, but then they struggle to go deep in relationships. Some struggle to walk into a room of people, like any people, <laughs> anywhere. Some feel anxiety ridden and like people are watching them and they just don't measure up and they don't fit in. Social insecurity makes relating to others nerve wracking and sometimes painful. And at different degrees, we all know what that feels like tonight. I mean, we're all going to be on a different spectrum here of social um, insecurity. One author said we're all like porcupines trying to huddle together for warmth, right? We, 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 we all have different, we're on a different spectrum here. Church, though, is decidedly a social environment. It, it is by nature a gathering together of people. And Christ doesn't just ask us or invite us to come together. He instructs us to come together. And it's like he's saying this, I am telling you for the health and the well-being of your soul to come together and be together and interact with one another. And he is forcing us to be social people. And we have to understand that. It's extremely important. And so I struggle with that. Well, you're not alone because millions and billions of people struggle with the same thing in levels, differing levels of severity. So why do so many people suffer socially? Okay, let me just give a few reasons tonight. And I'm, I, there's, just, there's just an entire study here and lots of ideas. Let me just give you three. First of all, we compare ourselves to other people and God's word tells us not to do that. Those who compare themselves amongst themselves are unwise, but we do it. One man... He was a 17th century essayist, 
And he said, in the misfortune of our best friends, there is something that does not entirely displease us. <laughs> I got to think about that for a second. In the misfortune of our best friends, there is something that does not entirely displease us. We all compare occasionally, but an insecure person, one, one who has no confidence, hasn't fully received the love of God, an insecure person takes a little more delight in the misfortune of those around them, even though they may deeply care for them and love them. It makes them feel a little bit better about themselves. See, every human feels sorry when something ha bad happens to someone they care for, but the insecure person feels better about themselves when misfortune happens to someone else. And what they don't realize is that measuring their status against another person literally feeds our insecurity. It makes us less social and less wanting to be around other people. Each comparison that we make to those around us diminishes our potential and our ability to become stable, secure, and stronger on our own. Comparison, me, when I take my life and I compare it to you and you do that to other people in this room, it literally feeds bitterness into our hearts and into our souls. There will always, 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 always be someone who has more than you. They make more than you. They do better than you. They're more talented than you. They look better than you. They feel better than you. And it never ends. And when you compare yourself to others, you literally torture yourself. And, and you're feeding on negative emotion. And it feeds the inferiority that we feel. And what does that do to us? It keeps us out of social settings because we compare. I think another reason is simply this, shyness. We're shy. Shy is the idea of being reserved or having or showing nervousness or timidity in the company of other people. And the problem is we categorically give ourselves a pass for not interacting with others because we're shy. Well, that's just not me. And I'm scared to. I'm going to tell you, if every preacher in the world gave into shyness, there'd be no preachers in the world. If every Christian gave into shyness, there'd be no saved people. That is not an excuse. Just because something makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean it's still right. We let ourselves not love. We let ourselves not take an interest in others because our hearts start to beat faster. Instead of facing our fears, we cave into them and we not only hurt ourselves, we hurt others by our withdrawal. Look, we don't all have to be the center of attention and you shouldn't try to be anyway. You don't have to be the bubbly person that walks in the room and makes everybody smile. But you need to walk into the room. And you need to work at making someone smile. Even if it's just that one person. Shyness should never keep you from interacting with other people. I think this last one tonight that we struggle with greatly is just sensitivity to criticism. We're so scared of what other people might say about us and how they might view us. And, 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 if, and if, I, if I make too big of a splash or I get too involved or I'm too much there, then boy, people might start to criticize me and talk negatively about me. You don't know how, no matter how hard you work, how great your ideas are, or how talented you may be, you will always be the object of criticism, period. 
You're going to be criticized if you don't walk in that social circle. You're going to be criticized if you don't reach out to someone. It is much better to have the criticism of men than the criticism of God, let me tell you. Jesus himself could not escape criticism. His motives were consistently misunderstood. He was both too liberal and too conservative. He was too mean and he was too kind. He couldn't win with everyone and so he didn't try. His goal was this, I'm going to please the Father. I'm going to receive his love and I'm going to let his love flow through me towards other people. See, how you respond to criticism plays a major role in your security. You can't please everyone, so don't try. You do what's right. You love other people. You be self-giving in your approach to life and to loving other people. There is, I think, a single skill that socially competent people who are working at self-giving love continually strive to achieve in their life. And it may be the most important thing you can do for making meaningful connections and carrying out this idea of self-giving love. Because Christ is asking us to reach outside ourselves, past the criticism, past the shyness, past our ineptitudes, get past all these barriers that we feel in our hearts. It's so simple it often goes unnoticed. And the simple skill is that simply this, asking a string of quality questions. Because quality questions have the ability to open up a person's spirit. I have mentioned this in the classes that I've taught through the years. Um, sometimes my brain just locks up and I don't know what questions to ask. And so for years I've carried a note in my phone with conversation starting questions that are quality questions that I can ask. And, and I think we need to have these types of things that fit our personality types. They're not throwaway questions like, how's the weather? Or, you know, how about them cowboys? Look, <laughs> those questions aren't wrong. And they have their place. And, and, and it certainly can warm things up. But they don't open the spirit and the heart of another person. And they certainly don't communicate this kind of love that Christ is asking us to communicate. Quality questions have these types of attributes. They invite vulnerability without being invasive. Don't be nosy, but be vulnerable. They are personal, but they also respect another person's privacy. They are asked out of genuine interest, but they aren't blunt. They convey warmth. They convey concern. They convey genuine interest and compassion. The questions are asked with affirmation and appreciation. And a phrase that I have observed, loving people often use to others. And one of the primary mentors in my life has used this. Tell me about. Well, well tell, me about your, tell me about your hobbies. What do you do for fun? Well, what a great phrase. It conveys interest. It's, it's warm. It's, hey, I care about you. Tell me about your work. What's going on there? Tell me about your home projects. What do you have going on right now? Tell me about your kids. How's their school going? How's parenting coming along? Tell me about your upbringing. I don't know anything about your past. Why don't you share something with me? For some of us, that's going to be painfully awkward if you've never tried that. And it's going to come out awkward and you're going to feel awkward. But let me promise you this, if you'll work at it, 
you'll get better. Look, we avoid social situations. We, 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 we are, we're really good at shaking someone's hand sometimes and saying hi and smiling and then just walking away and getting away as fast as we can. The idea of going out to their home or inviting them to our home or going out to a meal terrifies some of us. And I'm going to tell you, this is where self-giving love shines. It's I'm going to take an interest in you. I'm going to stop for a few minutes today and I'm not going to shake 20 people's hands. I'm going to shake your hand and I'm going to talk to you. And we're going to develop a connection here that's important. Taking a genuine interest in others will always make them feel better about themselves. And you can spread this idea of self-giving love by simply asking those things with affirmation and with appreciation. When conversation lulls, when things get socially awkward, casually pull out your phone, look at the notes section, and ask a thoughtful question. And discipline yourself with this idea. Not how am I doing? How are they doing? That's love. Thinking about other people. Word of caution here. Be prepared. Because oftentimes the conversation will be one-sided. People like to talk about themselves. And when you get them going, you may never get it edgewise, edgewise, right? But I'm going to tell you, there are some people, thoughtful people, who once they begin sharing about themselves, will then ask you questions too. And then disclosure begins... And then reciprocal, relational reciprocity takes place. And all of a sudden, you yourself have needs in your heart met that you didn't know existed. And because you take a genuine interest in other people, other people are going to begin to be genuinely interested in you. And the fruit of deep relationships is often harvested. I want to close with this thought tonight. It is the absence of love that is our undoing in life as Christians. It is the absence of self-giving love, the walking into the room of being more self-focused than others focused, that's going to limit us from the rewards in heaven that Christ would have for us. We have got to get to a point in our hearts where we walk into the place, wherever that place is. How are you doing, babe? How is your day? Walk into the classroom. We walk into the work environment with our coworkers. We walk into this church building and we are concerned about the lives of those around us. It is in the absence of love that we find ourselves lonely, lacking in wholeness, that we find ourselves feeling forlorn and on an island. Loving other people is good for you and it is good for them. And it is God's design for taking care of our social, emotional, spiritual, psychological, and physical health, and we have to work at it. Be a person. Determine in your heart, I'm going to be a one that thinks about other people, not just in big ways, not just the big sacrifices, but in the small ways too. It is in the little decisions of life that great love is found. How are they doing? Not always. How am I doing? Let's invest in other people. Let's prepare prepared in our hearts to strengthen our inner man through the love that Christ has for us, to be real, to walk worthy of Christ's love by taking a genuine interest in other people in the same way that he's taken a genuine interest in you.